Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Mark Karras, this is your third official interview on You Have Permission, and it's your first as Dr. Mark Gregory Karras. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much, Dan. Great to be here. Yeah. So the last time you were on, I want to kind of tie the two books together. You uh, had written a book called Religious Refugees, and you coined this term religious disorientation growth syndrome. Can you just refresh our memory on like kind of what you were getting at with that book? That was a time where I was just working through my own deconstruction, reconstruction process. I try to stay away from those terms. I'm more like spiritual metamorphosis. That's nice. And even in that book, I wasn't really familiar with the religious trauma lingo. And I just knew that something was definitely going on, a huge shift. And I just thought of this cluster of syndromes that I was seeing in the clients I was working with, Facebook groups about you know, basically deconstructing and reconstructing. So I coined the term religious disorientation growth syndrome. Syndrome is out of vogue with many of my colleagues in, in, on sure. this topic. I just wanted to say this is a cluster of symptoms I'm seeing. Yeah. And just to normalize people's experiences, you know, doubting or denying one's strongly maintained religious uh, beliefs, subtle or intense anxiety about one's relationship with God. Yeah. 
So this book, the diabolical trinity, as you call it, is sort of three factors that can lead to religious trauma. And we're going to define religious trauma in a second here. A wrathful God, tormenting hell, the sinful self. I think by which you really mean kind of the totally depraved, you know, thoroughly sinful self. I'm wondering if you can maybe tie the two books together. So you're seeing these clients, Mm -hmm. you're seeing this what we would call deconstruction, reconstruction, or what you're calling spiritual metamorphosis. And you're digging a little bit more into your own story. And then now it seems like this second book, you're, you're really kind of, you're getting stronger language. You're getting a bit more <laughs> diagnostic <laughs> of the problem. Like what else would you say to kind of walk us through the, the, the move between the two books? I wanted to narrow in on a particular form of religious trauma. Okay. Where for example, you know, uh, Linda K. Klein, right? She could write about the religious trauma of purity culture. Purity culture, right. Right. And so there could be other forms of religious trauma, you know, spiritual abuse and being in a, an authoritarian kind of environment with authoritarian pastor and experiencing that level. Of, so right. all different kinds of adverse religious experiences. But I wanted to hone in on hell indoctrination. And then the more I was... Uh, looking at hell indoctrination, I thought, this isn't just about the afterlife and sort of a proposition about the afterlife. This is sort of, well, the diabolical trinity. This is a, because you can't have a harrowing hell without a wrathful God wanting to put you there. And you can't have a harrowing hell without sinful people to be put there. So this sort of trifold nature of this religious uh, proposition, this diabolical trinity, I wanted to hone in on that, see what the psychological ramifications are for that. Part two is my, really starts the healing, but I know that um, you can't think yourself out of religious trauma of hell indoctrination. And so part two is really trying to wiggle hell beliefs from our minds by a sociological, philosophical lens. And then part three really is the therapeutic getting into neuroscience and modalities and ways to really heal it within the nervous system. So what we're going to do today is because I think I've spent a lot more time on this podcast cumulatively talking about the problem than I have talking about the solution. We're going to try and go 50-50. We're going to roughly split this episode into two halves where we kind of diagnose this issue we talk about various angles there, talk about the theology, the psychology. And then in the second half, we're going to talk through a number of basically treatment approaches and ways that therapists mostly are working with clients through this stuff. Now, we aren't going to be doing therapy. We can't replace an individual relationship with a therapist. But hopefully for people who may have experienced this stuff, there will be a slew of ideas that may sound like a really good fit for you, which you could either then read some more about it, bring it to a therapist, say, hey, could we do some internal family systems work, you know, or whatever. If something mm-hmm. is kind of catching mm-hmm. your ear as like, oh, that that might really apply to me. That's kind of our hope for the second half of the conversation. So you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of these related topics, spiritual abuse, religious trauma, sometimes religious abuse, spiritual trauma, right? Swapping out the modifiers. I don't want to get too in the weeds here. The academic community is really, it's new, right? The, the mm-hmm. community around this study, especially at the sort of highest level, empirical, peer-reviewed 
type stuff. It's very, very new. There's no agreed upon definitions of any of these terms, but there's a lot of overlap. And one of the interesting Mm -hmm. overlaps that I just want to mention here at the beginning is in my own spiritual abuse research and development of the spiritual harm and abuse scale, I Mm. use this thing called exploratory factor analysis and it's fancy term for the computer, you know, takes all these scores, all these numbers from over 3000 responses Mm. to my survey and it clumps things together. And those clumps are factors or themes, or in my case, types of spiritual abuse or Mm. potentially spiritually abusive experiences to be Mm. totally Mm -hmm. proper. And one of those that I've called is embracing violence. And I'm just going to read the four items Mm. from the Mm -hmm. embracing violence subtype of spiritual abuse. And I think Mm. we're going to find that there's quite a bit of overlap here. So the first vivid descriptions of hell, Satan, demons, or the end of the world being taught Mm. to young children, seeing scripture used to justify physical violence, terror or horror being used to motivate religious decisions and seeing scripture used to justify abusive parent-child behavior. Now those four are not meant to capture all the possible versions, but if you're giving someone a quick five, 10 minute screener, they are a good stand in for this larger kind of culture of churches Mm. that really go, yeah, violence is an integral and maybe even a good part of what God does. And that gets to both sort of psychological violence of Mm -hmm. like letting you know that hell is coming and all these, you know, intense eternal tortures and all of that, but also eh, people use a little violence now and again, it's all over the Bible. It's the kind of thing God uses all the time. It's not the kind of thing that we're too worried about. And we're certainly not Mm -hmm. worried about how old people are when we teach them these things, because it's such a fundamental part of how we view God and God's relationship to us and the world and God's quote unquote salvific plan for us that we're just not, we're nonplussed by it. In fact, we think it might even be a good thing. Mm. So I feel like there's going to be some connections here for how you are perceiving this kind of diabolical trinity. What are, what are you hearing there? What connections are you making? First of all, I'm, I'm totally struck and been struck by looking at the research and hearing stories and asking questions from people that there's such a spectrum. It's so wild to think that a person can look at divine violence and, you know, like I, I say in the book, another person's theological treasure is another person's noxic trash, if you will. Yes. What predisposes someone to look at divine violence, to look at the notion of eternal conscious torment, and to be so struck by it that they can have nightmares, panic attacks, uh, hell anxiety, even though they're in a church and, quote, they're saved, right? Mm-hmm. And, and as opposed to someone, yeah, you know, it's just it's just a reality, just the way it is, or someone who treasures it. It's like, of course, Mark, like God's holiness demands a verdict. And, you know, because of God's justice, it makes perfect sense why somebody would be tortured for eternity. That doesn't cause me anxiety. That causes me to want to praise God for his holiness and righteousness. Yeah. And that's why I'm careful to say potentially spiritually abusive experiences. Because we don't want to over pathologize. And some people in our space, not to do too much, you know, inside baseball or like sniping at fellow researchers or whatever, 
But there can be a tendency to say all quote unquote bad theology, whatever, and that's generally going to be in the eye of the beholder. Mm. All bad theology is necessarily harmful or necessarily abusive to people. And the research just does not bear that out. People Mm -hmm. do not have the same reactions to the same teachings. Now, we might be able to say that on a statistical whole, you know, taking everybody equal, Mm -hmm. like I haven't seen these studies, but you could imagine a study that compares (laughs) thousands of people with these beliefs and then thousands of people with these other beliefs. And you can look for sort of commonalities or group level effects. But that's not what is being said. What's being said generally, I think, irresponsibly when it is said is, well, oh, you were taught this. You were abused. You have experienced trauma. And it's like, no, 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 no. no. Hold on. Like most people don't really, truly deep down believe that everybody around them that's not saved is going to hell. If they did, their lives would be different. They would not just go (laughs) along with their suburban Whatever, if they really believed that. But you and I, and probably most listeners of this show, we tend to be the type of people in church communities that did really fucking believe whatever was being taught. And that is why we have so much to process. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to downplay those real effects on people who do have traumatic experiences. But if we over pathologize that we will lose First of all, people's trust. And then second of all, we will not be able to properly weigh and sort of value the painful experience of people that were traumatized. So we don't want to mm-hmm. call everything trauma or everything abuse. We want to save that because it's really disorienting and really painful when it does happen to you. Let's get a definition here of religious trauma. What's the definition that you use? I say it this way. It's the physical spiritual, emotional, or psychological response to religious propositions, practices, persons, or structures that stick a wrench in an individual's ability to cope and fix up their nervous system to the point where it's unable to return to a sense of baseline safety. That's how I'm... (laughs) Okay. You got to make sure to get that. I know. (laughs) Um, You're not trying to reach... A conservative audience who is trying to take religious trauma seriously. You're trying. You're you're reaching uh, people who are suffering from it. That's who you're aiming at. It is. And and as a side, I did not include that definition in my book, oh, okay. but I wish I would have. Yeah, keeping it real, kind of definition. Yeah, it gets in the way of functioning. Is a is a shorthand for that, right? Like you you have an internal reaction. So the way that I think about uh, spiritual abuse and religious trauma, spiritual abuse is the thing that happens to you. And religious trauma is the thing that happens inside of you, essentially. May may I add just a little bit of nuance there? And we, we may agree or disagree. The way I'm framing it is spiritual abuse. And this goes back to the first definitions of it, you know, where Ken Blue defined it as sort of when a leader with spiritual authority uses that authority to coerce control. Yeah, it was mostly about power and coercion in the beginning. Yeah, That's right. But this is like the evolution of this stuff where it was first thought of, yes, with authoritarian leaders, control, coercion, all that stuff. But now it's morphed to more broaden in the sense that even religious propositions by themselves can cause religious 
what we call religious trauma. So I think it's evolved a little bit where you write, like you said, spiritual abuse, I think more of the authoritarian leader where religious trauma can be more broad. And the way I define that is when a person is smacked by religious propositions, practices, persons, or structures, that depending on the intensity of the blow can leave a minor welt that heals fairly quickly mm-hmm. or can cause a traumatic fracture that has a lasting a potentially significant neurobiological impact. I love so that. Yeah. It it may or it may not lead to religious trauma, but it certainly can be aversive. Yeah. Well, talk about your own trauma <laughs> to, ah, yes. to make a bridge there. You, you really get into it around the idea of hell in the book. And I, I think it's really, you know, it's powerful and refreshing. And I'd like people to hear a little bit of that. Yeah. In the book, I do touch on my story a bit. Uh, like I said, I share a lot of people's stories. Let's see. I became a Christian when I was around 21. I've shared the story before, you know, parent, mom, drug addict, died from a drug overdose, uh, you know, domestic violence and, and abuse and all kinds of stepfather and motorcycle gang. And there's a, as a side, a brand new book that's been written about him. And it's a bestseller about the pagans. And it's just crazy. Wow. But then I became a Christian at 21, one of those Damascus Road experiences. But I was saved in a oneness Pentecostal church. And within that church, constantly threatened with eternal damnation uh, by a portrayal of a vengeful God, they relentlessly pounded into the idea of my sinfulness and depravity, leading me to believe that my salvation was at stake with every prayer. Hmm. I mean, the rules and regulations of my religion were so suffocating. I know this is going to sound so weird to listeners, but I was afraid that I would go to hell if I drank soda. That may sound a little trippy, but I thought like it would defile the temple of the Holy Spirit because it was impure. In some sense, I think your experience is the perfect experience to set up this conversation because Mm. that might be the most like heightened version of hell threat, you know, that exists in any sort of remotely mainstream form of Christianity. Like you don't, you don't get much more sort of barometric hell pressure than, than that. Right. Totally. I don't think I had scrupulosity, but it was on that hell anxiety spectrum. It was pretty intense. Even me listening, again, this is going to sound weird. I am on the high end of the spectrum that listening to Metallica or Pantera, Mm -hmm. I would feel really anxious. I I almost feel emotional right now. I I don't know why, but I think because I was such, and maybe some listeners feel the same. Like there's something about the sensitive temperament where Mm. we care so much about truth. Yeah. We care about what's real. We care about, you know, love. and, And when someone tells us that we can go to hell for doing something it's like we take that seriously man yes and and like the creator of the universe the all-powerful who made me like like i was so sensitive i wanted to listen to that but to think right now like i was so bound up with anxiety and fear that if i listened to particular music that i was told with was uh, had its origins with demons that I can go to hell. Number one, that fucking pisses me off. But number yeah. two, I grieve for that young man who is suffering to that extent. 
I appreciate your vulnerability, man. I could people can't see it, but I think they could hear the emotion in your voice there. I, I just that is something that comes up over and over in emails I get from listeners. It's certainly my story. It's certainly a lot of my friends' story. That those of us who are processing through this stuff are often the ones who really bought it. So you you kind of come up with a, a a trinity, a diabolical trinity. There are three factors. When you look at it more closely, you can sort of separate out these three things that are interacting with each other, much like we think of the three persons of the trinity being in some yeah. sort of relation with each other. The first is the traumatizing doctrines of a harrowing hell, then a primarily wrathful and angry God, and a view of human beings as essentially sinful and depraved. Mm -hmm. And you talk about wanting to know the sort of psychological implications and ramifications of each of these. So Mm -hmm. let's just spend like three or four minutes on each and and get a, a, a kind of a cliff notes version here. So the traumatizing doctrines of a harrowing hell, we're not talking theologically, we're talking psychologically. So what do you Mm -hmm. think that those doctrines tend to do for people who take them seriously? Well, I think anxiety is going to be a, a, just a key. I mean, in a sense, it just makes sense. I mean, going with some of the research around this, as I was looking at what is the research around hell uh, and beliefs in hell, not a whole lot of it. Yeah. But researchers have coined the term hell anxiety to encapsulate the apprehension many people experience regarding the concept of hell. And there is what's called the hell anxiety scale. I interviewed the uh, I interviewed the authors of that paper years ago. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Josh can put a link to that in the show notes, as well as, of course, your your previous episodes. Those will all be in the show notes. Cool. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. You know, some of the statements are sometimes it's difficult to control my worry about hell. I feel an intense fear of hell when I do something I'm not supposed to do. I am fearful when ministers and other religious authorities talk about hell. Yeah. So it's kind of basic in that sense that there was a study conducted by Baylor University, and they concluded, and I quote, people who fear hell are some of the most anxious Americans. Yeah. Um, wow. But there again, it's not for everybody. Some people relish in it. Some people are out in the streets with picket signs, you're going to hell. And what's so fascinating is they're feeling the opposite, which gets into why has existed for so long. Right. They're feeling pride. They're feeling good. They're feeling excitement and endorphins and oxytocin and connected and be, they belong. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. We can go a little bit out of order here because I do think that's yeah. a really helpful angle that you're taking as well, a helpful kind of unit to include in the analysis, which is, you know, back to the nuance versus ideologically committed. When we are ideologically committed, as I Mm. think about it, what we tend to do is we tend to think, how the hell could anybody believe this opposite thing? Like, Mm -hmm. how could people be so dumb? How can anybody keep these systems going? And what a more nuanced approach would do is go, Huh, I wonder why people can believe this. I wonder right. what it's doing. Yeah. I try and do this with clients. I try and get them to be curious about people in their lives or systems that they come up against. Like, what do you think it's doing for them? You know, mm-hmm. rather than just, oh, they're stupid or they're bad. You know, so so what do you think that the hell doctrines what what do you think the evidence shows that it does? for individuals mm-hmm. or for groups. So if we talk about why has hell narratives, why has it lasted so long? 
what is the function of hell? Right? Like it, it's sort of with anything that has lasted for thousands and thousands of years. If it's lasted this long, there is some evolutionarily value to it. Yeah. One function of hell narratives in their interrelated doctrines of human depravity and a punitive terrifying God is their power to legitimize oppressive structures and maintain the status quo. Let's talk about a primarily wrathful and angry God. Mm. What does that do psychologically? Certainly a lot, but if we talk about secure attachment, I think the obvious is that it can foster an insecure. It, notice I said can, right? So yeah. it can foster an insecure attachment. I mean, think about having a partner or a parent who uses violent physical punishment and discipline, or think about their capacity in an instant to overpower you and put you in a torture torture chamber for being naughty yeah. uh, or for being a you know their child who sinned. And miss the the mark of the ideal of love. I mean, it wouldn't foster a secure attachment. So there again, it's fear based and in attachments, there's the ABCs, right? We need acceptance, belonging, comfort, and safety. How could I have a a, a loving, purely loving relationship with God if I thought that because of my behaviors, even being a Christian, even going to the altar? I mean, call every Sunday for years. If I knew that God could punish me by sending a demon, by withdrawing his love, by making me sick for doing something wrong, or by causing me to, you know, suffer in eternity for I couldn't feel secure. Like it's so, and that's where gaslighting comes in. It's like you're telling me that God loves me, but that God can pulverize me in the next minute. Yeah. That is the that is the essence of I work with domestic abuse victim uh, victims. I mean, I love you. If you just listen to what I say, then I'll, I'll really I'll take care of you, but if you don't then I'll Are you kidding me? Like yeah. how could we feel okay with that? Some people do, I couldn't. Well, I could speak to this is my story and many people I work with, but that is a, a clear example of how that could affect somebody, right? I do think that attachment is a really good lens for this one. I just think that as a lens here, mm. it explains pretty well the difference in your and I's experience around this topic. So right, right. listeners know well, and I've talked with you about my experience with spiritual abuse around end times teaching. But the thing that that triggered for me was never that I wasn't good with God. It mm. was that I would not get to live a full life. That's the thing. Yeah. It, that's always what it triggers for me mm -hmm. is that I won't get to sort of see grandkids. I won't get to kind of do the, the normal human life. And, and a lot of people don't get to do that for all kinds of reasons. They can die in accidents. They can get childhood cancer, you know, they, all kinds of reasons. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing that I'm more afraid of than going to hell. Uh, I, I never was. And I had secure attachment growing up mm -hmm. and I heard somewhere even though we didn't have a particularly reform theology that I was raised with, you know, once saved, always saved. And that clicked in for me. And mm. I just, it, that didn't bother me. It was never yeah. whether I was in, but I did have secure attachment with my parents and, right. and you didn't. Right. And That's so right. Right. we, we yeah. had very different upbringings around the safety yes. and comfort. And yes. could we expect, you know, regularity, caring regularity from our caregivers in our homes. Yeah, and so I don't yeah. want to say that that, that doesn't yeah, yeah. always explain everyone, but it does seem to me like a really good lens. 
And that would be, for me, a beautiful study to do to see if there's a correlation between insecure attachment and the degree to which people suffer with uh, held beliefs. That's a great idea. Oh, and another study I I had in mind is uh, the correlation between a person's degree of self-compassion and to the uh, degree of which they internalize and believe in uh, held beliefs and suffer because of that. I want to share a quote since you met, mentioned Crispin Mayfield yeah. on the topic of hell. He says, I've always been terrified of hell. I could never quite relax with God because I always worried that in the end, I turn out I was a goat, not a sheep. This fear has always hung over my head, causing me to white knuckle my spiritual life. What if I didn't have true faith? What if between now and my death, I made some terrible decisions or ended up renouncing my faith? As much as I wanted to feel safe in the everlasting arms, I knew that I wasn't. If anyone can go to hell, then I can go to hell, which meant I could never relax. Yeah. Wow. That's what we're talking about. It's just, yeah, it's such a, yeah, it's such yeah. a great summing up of, of that whole thing, yeah, that connection. Totally. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that third bit, the view of humans as essentially sinful and depraved, as opposed to like, I like the Eastern Orthodox ancestral sin, their version of original sin, which as I understand it is essentially something like this. If you're a human being, you're eventually going to sin. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, like that's, I think that's good. That seems pretty accurate depending on what we mean by sin. I'm going to act in ways that harm others for my own selfish benefit or out of my own fear or wounding or whatever. Great. That's not the same as I am born thoroughly impure and in need of some metaphysical cure, lest I stay out of God's presence. So psychologically, right, there's a real Mm -hmm. difference between, hey, you know what? Our religion recognizes the evil in the world. It locates it within the human heart. We have methods for dealing with that evil. We have God, God's self, who helps yeah. us with that. Okay, great. Versus, ah, yeah. we are thoroughly shitty, right? Yeah. So talk mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. There are truths that I can get on board with. It's just the way they've been delivered and handed down to us. Like, yeah, I can I can buy in that at some level, I think of waves and particles. We're both a wave and a particle. We are saints and we are sinners. Yeah, I like that. Like, I can get on board with that. And But it's how you talk to me about it. If you're frothing at the mouth, screaming and yelling about me being a sinner and that I could go to hell— uh, because of that, and that God's angry at, like, that's just fucked up. I'm sorry. But if you talk to me. <laughs> clinical like, language. Thank yeah, you, I Mark, mean, for the clinical language. <laughs> if you talk to me like a, a compassionate spiritual director, right? Someone who looks at all things through a lens of compassion, sees that we can sin, that we are also saints. But it's the sin, it's the, and I define sin as anything that fractures, disrupts, or destroys relationship, right? Like if you if you came to me and talked to me about sin as anything that messes up love, like, dude, I could be on board with that. That's actually inspiring. That actually makes, it motivates me to want to be a better human being, 
right? Because now we're talking about love. We're talking about relationships at its core and what is conducive to effective relationships or not. Yeah. But, yeah. It, it, but it's not. And so hell is deeply connected to the doctrine of original sin and the view that all human beings from their birth, as you say, are uh, unclean, repulsive to a holy and perfect God. Yeah. Which, by the way, I mean, think about, see, I don't think people understand what they're saying. If we took that theology to its ultimate conclusion, then even babies would go to hell for eternity and be tortured. Like, but someone could say, no, 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 Mark, they, they don't have the ability to consent. But guys, you're not saying it's about consent. You're saying that we're born sinners, and yeah. you're telling me that God can have nothing to do because he's so pure and holy with sin. It's right? a it's a get it's a cake and eat it too situation, or more like a poison and eat it too situation because the the age of accountability thing, which is the sort of loophole there, I, I think is just a psychological necessity because yeah. you just won't keep people in a church that believes that babies who are too old to have accepted Christ go to hell. Like that's just, yeah. can't, that is an actual consequence yeah. of the thinking that cannot be accepted. So we come up yeah. with the age of accountability, but once Brilliant. we have age of accountability, now we're doing the Orthodox thing of ancestral sin. Eventually mm -hmm. you will sin. But that's yeah. a different approach. It yeah. you know, so it's really it it is I don't think it holds up internal yeah. logic wise. Oh, oh man. Listen, they tell us that we're not going to hell because we rejected Jesus. We're going to hell because we are sinners. Mm -hmm. Right? So yeah, we don't want to belabor that theological point. But the point here is that we human beings, according to this, what I call hellbound people theology. That we have zero worth in and of ourselves. We're yeah. objects of wrath. There's nothing good within us or about us. And taking it to its logical conclusion, even eternal conscious torment proponents that wax poetic about God loving us must admit that it cannot be us whom God loves. That according to hellbound people theology, God cannot even look at us without wanting us to, to send us into a pit of hell. Right, So we are so repugnant before God that he can only see us through the prism of Jesus. So God's disgust and wrath toward us are absorbed by Christ. So within us, we're basically ragdolls that could be just thrown in the fire, but it's because of Christ that we are something. I mean, that's the theology anyway that I was heard. Yeah, And just so people, they're not like, oh, Mark, you're being dramatic. I mean, if we think about Jonathan Edwards, and I, I reminded of, of this one quote where he says, and this is old stuff, but people still believe it. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast in the fire. He has a pure eyes in the bear to you to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Yeah. I'm not making this up. It's ramping it up to 11 or infinity, frankly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. No, it's, that is, that is the move that um, a lot of reformed theology makes. And then the, yeah. the second move is, but God has elected you and some of us for yeah. not that. And you know, one thing you were kind of talking about earlier is sort of what does 
what does hell do at a sociological level? Well, this kind of election theology is a fucking hell of a sociological drug. Mm, I mean, mm-hmm. that's the ultimate in-out group uh, marker, yes. right? It is a cosmic in-group and a cosmic out-group. I want to start moving on to sort of treatments here, yeah. but yeah. but just making a note there that like, yeah, being a part of an in-group with a diabolical out-group, it's effective. It helps you in the short term psychologically in a lot of ways. It gives yes. you a sense of community, belonging. You are you have a cosmic purpose. You're on the yeah. right side of an eternal battle, you know. But if you're the kind of person who follows the thinking to its logical conclusions, mm-hmm. well, then you end up with an untenable life, essentially, which is what you're talking about. One quick story. When I was in the Pentecostal church, I was at a men's meeting. And hundreds and hundreds of guys. And there was this big famous preacher was preaching. And they talked about people who were smoking. And then he said with this big loud voice, if you're smoking now, you'll be smoking later. And the place went in an uproar. I mean, the cheering and the raising of the fists. And the, and literally in that moment, I started to cry. And that was the first time I said, what the heck is going on? There are all kinds of reasons to join the Patreon campaign. Let me give you a few of them. Number one, if you think that this podcast is valuable and you like the fact that it is a part-time job for me and you'd like me to be able to put more time toward that part-time job, especially as my doctoral studies are wrapping up here, then you can support it. Five bucks a month, not a huge deal, helps me a lot. Uh, There's also participation There's going to be more and more patron participation in the coming months as I roll some new stuff out that might be questions to ask. It might be quarterly calls or live hangs, something like that. I haven't worked out all the details yet, but that kind of thing is coming. There is the online community, the Facebook community, which is for patrons only. And I would also like to get a Discord community, some other alternative going for people who want to be off Facebook for obvious reasons or just aren't on Facebook. And then finally, there is the additional episodes, which maybe I should have led with because uh, these are often fantastic. And the one that just came out is a conversation I had with an author, Stacey Frenis, and her book, Love Makes Room. It's a story of her coming to terms with her, her daughter who came out as gay. And it is a really good conversation. We talk about the book, but of course we get into all sorts of uh, related issues and her story. I asked her for a pitch for her book, and here is what she said. If you're struggling to better understand an LGBTQ loved one in your life, start with Love Makes Room. It's the story of how I come to terms with my daughter coming out as gay. It's both a handbook to help you through the process And it's a beautiful opening to important conversations. It will give you language for your own journey with the people you love. Isn't that beautiful? Couldn't we all use more language for our journey with the people that we love? So you can hear that episode and all previous patron-exclusive episodes. There are, there's got to be a hundred or more now. A couple hundred? And, you know, we've got stuff with Tony and Josh 
most months called Generation Gap Culture Hour. Those episodes are really fun. We tend to focus more on current events, things like that. So there's more coming. It's a good time to join uh, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes. Anyway, let's get back to the episode. All right. Well, we didn't quite do half and half, but we are saving the last 30 minutes here, Mark, for for some treatment considerations. And these are things that have worked for people in various settings. They're not all going to apply to every person who's gone through this. But I love it as a kind of a shorthand, almost like a table of contents Mm -hmm. of, of available treatments. Yeah. So let's let's talk through some of these. The, the first yeah. one you mentioned in the book is memory reconsolidation. What's that? Memory reconsolidation is just this emerging research on the nature of the memory. And this gets into really Bruce Ecker's work. And so I can just kind of mention him. And so he wrote the Unlocking the Emotional Brain, highly recommend it. But it's this notion that within trauma that we're not talking about just talk therapy being able to heal trauma, that we have to get into the subcortical tracks, if you will, that these deeply embedded memories that cause really so much of the the pain and suffering within ourselves. So since trauma's imprint is on the mind and body, like I said, knowledge alone is insufficient to heal it. So we can't talk or lecture a religious trauma victim out of chronic shame or unrelenting inner criticism, unworthiness, helplessness, insomnia, etc. And so the understanding is that we need to go into the memories, and so we need to dredge up the emotional material of what's embedded in those memories that are really getting us stuck. That's that's what it's really about. And so within those neural networks and those networks associated with those things, such as religious trauma, and let's say a angry, wrathful God, there the information is located deep within our bodies. And that's where we find so much sources of the terror and shame. So these memories need some revising, uh, need some updating, if you will. So by processing the traumatic memories, we can unlock and release energy in the body that has been trapped and blocked. So once it's released, it can go elsewhere, living, uh, helping us live more authentic lives. So memory reconsolidation is sort of the process, and Bruce Eckers really kind of talks about this. And it's sort of a, a, a stepped process of how to use memory reconsolidation to heal trauma. Well, it brings up a good point, which is healing from trauma of any kind is necessarily an embodied experience. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly interesting and can be counterintuitive to people who are raised in religious traditions that are highly suspicious of the body, of emotions that put cognitive content of propositional beliefs and creedal claims and stuff like that at the very top with a big gap between that and everything else. Mm -hmm. So part of healing for most people Mm -hmm. in a situation like this is actually reclaiming the fact that their brains are a part of their bodies and that their nervous system, uh, which contains, you know, of course the brain and all your, all your nerves, you know, I've got a little, got a back situation going right now. It includes my sciatic Mm, nerve. mm. You know, all that stuff is in your body. And when, when, you know, 
Bessel van der Kolk talks about, mm. you know, the body keeps the score yeah. of trauma. It's like literally like your limbic system is that's where you have your fight, flight, fawn and freeze system. And, and this stuff is, is just thoroughly embodied. And it, that offers a lot of normalization yes. and to look at people's experiences through a lens of compassion. If you've suffered with religious trauma and, you know, you still suffer with panic attacks and insomnia and increased anxiety and shame. And like Mark, I've, I've been to talk therapy or I listened to sermons or I read books. I just want to say that that's all great stuff to do. And there's a reality that it makes sense why you're still suffering from religious trauma, because unless we get into the depths of the subcortical nervous system, and are able to work with that and utilize approaches that really specialize and help bring forth healing and unblocking and dealing with some of those traumatic memories, we're all going to be stuck in that stuff. Uh, you know, the notion of healing is interesting because I do think it's a process and I don't think anyone's fully, quote, healed. I, I don't, I don't want to be a snake oil salesperson and yeah. say, well, if you do steps A, B, C, and D, you'll be healed from religious trauma, but I do think there are ways to exponentially increase a greater sense of livelihood, of vitality, a decrease of shame and self-criticism. While we may suffer with the inner critic and shame because of these things, while we may have some nightmares, can we still live a valued life given that we still suffer to some degree with religious trauma? What, what metaphor do you use to sort of describe the way that unprocessed trauma affects us? Do you have a, a go-to? I like to use the ball analogy. You know, you're in a pool and you have this beach ball that just keeps hitting up against you and it's just annoying as hell. And then we just try to push it down. You know, yeah. I, I don't, but th this is what we, you know, we know in the literature is that avoiding trauma uh, kind of just kind of lets it continue, right? Mm -hmm. It's this paradoxical thing. We think that we're, you know, dealing with our trauma effectively by avoiding it, but by avoiding it, paradoxically, we are just letting it fester and just show up and bubble up. And that beach ball will just, you're in relationship and you think you're okay. And then you, the trauma gets triggered and then the ball comes up and hits you in the face and your partner in the face. And so that's why we have to deal with the trauma. And I, I tell mm -hmm. my clients like this, I like this kind of linear way of thinking it. We have to choose to deal. And then we have to choose to feel. Then we have to choose to reveal so that we can heal. Whoa. Right. That's good. So deal, feel, heal, and reveal. So not everyone wants to deal. You know, we want to avoid, mm -hmm. let me just get busy in this or let me, you know, do drugs or... And that's not the judge, you know, it's, we're doing the best we can to try to avoid what feels so, so painful. Mm -hmm. But at some point we have to choose to, to deal and then feel, and that gets into the processing. Not numbing ourselves. Yep. Yep. Right. And then reveal in the midst of a compassionate witness, someone who's going to be with us mm -hmm. uh, in that. Because paradoxically, people have hurt us the most, but in my opinion, it is other human beings and their compassion and love that can bring us the most healing. And then healing typically results. You know. Avoidance is such a common response to trauma that it is literally oh, yeah. part of the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
You're right, looking right. for avoidant. You have to have avoidance behaviors of some kind to be diagnosed with PTSD. It is yeah. that normal. So yeah, yeah, don't feel yeah. like that's weird. Tell me a little bit about the self-compassion work you do with clients. So self-compassion work, I mean, it's just how one relates to our, oneself. I, for me, I think it's a subversive middle finger to toxic religion hmm. that at least in that vein says a God is angry at you and wants to punish you. Where for me, it's a subversive middle finger. You know what? I'm going to prioritize loving myself. And I'm going to help folks learn how to do that well through research. I mean, through little practices such as, you know, Chris and Neff is, of course, one of the, the big researchers here. The three components, self-compassion, common humanity, and mindfulness. The point is, is number one, how can I be mindful of, wow, this is suffering I'm experiencing this moment? Common humanity, how can I link it to... I'm not the only one suffering through this. Yeah. Um, and, and the third is how can I be intentional about giving myself some compassion right now? And so it could be as simple as, you know, teaching a client in vivo, because I like experiential work. Let's, in vivo meaning uh, stuff that you're doing um, in the moment, in the moment right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what would it be like to just, can you put, you're experiencing some suffering right now as we're talking about this religious trauma. What would it be like to just put your hand on your heart, right? And can you notice what that feels like? Do you notice the warmth? And with a spirit of compassion, and that may be hard, but think about the best version of yourself as if you were to see somebody suffering, a little child next to you, and your compassionate self that would be activated. But extend that to yourself in this moment. And then just say something to the effect of, I notice the suffering that I'm experiencing. This is a moment of suffering. Hell trauma has affected me. I feel the shame that comes up with that, the notion that I'm no good, that nothing good dwells within me. It's affecting me. It hurts. Other people are suffering with this religious trauma as well. This is the common humanity. Yeah. And then just saying something to yourself, may I be well. May I know that I am good inside, and may I know that this moment will pass and that I will be okay. Like, this is just one practical example of self-compassion, but there's also combining self-compassion work with memory reconsolidation. Let's take a, a, a moment that you have with your parents that were very difficult, they're very religious, and they said very cruel, mean things to you, and it deeply causes some pain and suffering. Let's go back to that memory. Let's activate the neural networks. And now within your memory, can we invite, for example, let's say your adult self, your compassionate adult self, or let's bring in, I have a chapter on bringing in nurturing figures and protective figures in our imagination. Let's bring one of them in, in this moment. What do they say to you in this moment? And then, for example, one client with permission, you know, they shared... Mustafa was one of their sort of protective figures, wise figures. In that moment, Mustafa comes and just says something wise and powerful and sort of protects them in that moment in the imagination, because the brain doesn't give a damn if it's objectively real or not, right? It it experiences it as, as if it is real, whether that's in the imagination or as if you're really there. So that's some imaginative work combining self-compassion work. It's really... 
theologically kind of interesting and sad as well uh, when these are not made available to people. But there's so many resources from within the Christian tradition, too, that go so well with self-compassion. I mean, I tend to think that, like, the sort Mm -hmm. of experiential core of religion is mystical types and then, to a lesser degree, most people occasionally Mm -hmm. having experiences of feeling totally loved and held by God. Like if Mm. we didn't have those experiences, there wouldn't be religion. I don't think, I don't think, or it wouldn't look like it does. And yet our need for in group, out group, our need for, you know, feeling okay Mm. about the scarcity of resources, all these various pressures that we have, the various ways we've been wounded, you know, we bring in and we, we put a bunch of scaffolding on top of God made it. And it was very good. You know, like, and it's, it's so sad. I was just going to point out that there's such rich material within the Christian tradition, the contemplative tradition. Yeah. But even when you look back and you look at the mystics and the musicians, when I think of some of the psalmists, I mean, they talk about, you know, God knowing our frame and knowing that we're of the dust and and this God of mercy and compassion. I mean, it's in there. I would say that our Eastern, you know, uh, the the Buddhists have it on us when it comes to the practical uh, applications of loving ourselves. Yes. For sure. loving kindness, meditations. Yeah. But, you know, within the greatest commandment, there is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. The psalmists are a great example of that. That's that kind of primary religious experience that yeah, in my mind yeah. is sort of the kind of that's the human center of religion. Otherwise we would just do, we wouldn't think it was God. Like we would just think it was something else. When you're getting into some of this imaginative work, it also made me think of internal Mm -hmm. family systems theory, which is another approach, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, you know this much better than me, but basically it's the idea that it comes out of family systems theory, which is a Mm -hmm. family therapy modality where you sort of, you're, you're thinking about the roles that different people are playing within a family system. You're kind of bringing that to the surface and working mm-hmm. with it. And then at one point, someone, you, you might know the name I don't, was like, hey, that's kind of like inside an individual person. We Which have different, worse. right. We have different versions of ourselves that are kind of playing these roles. And you can go to your inner child. You can go to the the part of you that was wounded or the part of you that was once young. And, you know, or like we've been talking about mm-hmm. the part of us that just in a childlike way accepts that the things Mm -hmm. of God are important and big and we care about the consequences and we don't yet understand the ways in which we're being misled and having, you know, like listening and like sitting with that part of ourselves and and giving it a little bit of space. Yeah. This notion that within ourselves are these subpersonalities and within us, these subpersonalities have their own experiences and impulses and motivations and personalities. It's very trippy. But to think of one sort of being that wounded inner child, if we were to think in real life and there was a family member or a sibling that felt like the scapegoat or oppressed or marginalized in some way, we'd want to just reach out you know, with love and compassion. We want to listen to what they have to say, you know, in the healthiest, uh, you know, scenarios. But that's what I invite my clients to to do with their parts, uh, their subpersonalities, their wounded child, their part of them that was deeply affected by religion, who maybe, like, for example, I'd ask, how old does that part feel? 
And for some, they grew up with especially, well, listen, the ones that I experience who have complex PTSD. Really quick, complex PTSD is, as opposed to PTSD, which tends to be like a single event of threatened death, sexual assault, etc., Complex PTSD generally refers to like growing up in or spending a lot of time in a sort of repeatedly traumatizing environment such that there's not necessarily this one big event. And oftentimes, maybe most of the time, religious trauma falls into that category. Although I I can think of examples where people have one particularly really bad experience that can give them PTSD symptoms. Sure. But generally speaking, we spend a lot of time in our religious communities. And so if they are traumatizing, it's more likely to be a sort of complex PTSD situation That's where right. we're being traumatized sort of in, in smaller and bigger ways more regularly, j- just empirically because we're, we're there a lot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful distinction. And right. So there's this cumulative effect with complex PTSD. And, you know, I'm still piecing this out. I, I know typically in the literature with CPSD, PTSD, and this cumulative effect of the death by a thousand cuts, if you will, or trauma by a thousand cuts, there is a, um, a bigger impact and consequences on one's view of self. And so getting really into identity, typically there's a lot more shame, uh, shame proneness. Uh, with individuals like that and uh, a real feeling of insecurity with uh, people and, and the world around us. But all that to say is to ask what old that part is. I'll get sometimes I'm I'm nine or I'm 12, hmm. you know, when the parents were threatening them, you know, with a, a vengeful God or God's watching you, you know, God's going to punish you if you like literally saying these kinds of things. And then to have within the imaginative work to go back to that moment with that inner child and just to love in them, whether it's your adult version of yourself, whether it's a nurturing figure, whether it's a protective figure or a wise figure, it's powerful. There, There is, by the way, Christian approaches that bring God into memories, right? That's their whole shtick. But I, you know, in my own work, I whether it's God or whether it's a compassionate uncle, the lasting result is the same, which is another conversation in and of itself. Well, that gets back to Crispin's episode on God attachment, right? The way that God's yeah. not a person, but we sort of only can interact with God as if God was a person, because that's just the way that we interact. And that's all really interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. One last modality I want to talk about briefly, a treatment modality is called acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT. And what you and I both like about it is that it doesn't just focus on reducing symptoms, but it also focuses on values and like living a value directed and goal directed life in that I actually think really resonates with me as the type of person we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Someone for whom these big questions, the stuff about God, the stuff about truth, this stuff really matters. This part of act speaks to me like what, what am I doing here? I want to live a life that is purposeful and meaningful. I mean, I think the explosive success of the purpose-driven life is probably another example of this being a fairly common thing that people want. Mm -hmm. And with ACT, you kind of use those values and you make goals out of them and you take that purpose. And then that's one of the ways that you sort of naturally reduce some of these symptoms. I want to hear a little bit from you about like 
what that kind of values and goals and, and how, how that kind of plays into someone totally. who's dealing with this diabolical trinity. Totally. Uh, let's conduct a thought experiment. So imagine for a moment that in front of you are all the things you really care about, everything you love, value, and appreciate. Example of these might include your family, friends, pets, the delicious food you savor, sports, books, fashion, you name it. All the things and people that add value to your life. Also before you are the goals and hobbies that interest you and the tasks you need to get done. Um, they may include chores such as cleaning the garage or doing yard work or something more meaningful like taking good care of the kids or being a loving partner. Now, place your hands together, palms up as if, as if they were pages of a book. And imagine that your hands are symbolic of your passionate determination to heal your overactive inner critic and to avoid shame or fear, anxiety, questions of identity, feelings of emptiness, all that religious trauma in the ways that it can affect us. Now, imagine that placed on your hands are all the religious questions you're trying to solve about God and faith and humanity and the afterlife, and maybe even your anger towards the church. Now, let's see what happens when you put your hands up until they're covering your eyes. You may be doing that already, but notice a few things. First, observe how you are disconnected you are from all that you love, value, and appreciate. If the loved one were in front of you, how connected could you be with your hands held up like this? If your favorite television show were playing, how much of it could you see? If the goals that bring meaning to your life are there, how much could you realistically accomplish with your hands covering your eyes in that way? What aspects of your life would you miss out on? Now, let's see what happens when you drop your hands down and put them on your lap. If your loved one were in front of you, wouldn't it be easier to connect with them? If you're watching a show, wouldn't it be easier to watch or enjoy if a relationship were strained, could you be more intentional about repairing it? If there were a task or a goal you needed to accomplish that would enhance your life in some way, is it easier to focus on now that you'll let go of the negative blockages? So here's the thing. One of the challenges for those working through the trauma of hell indoctrination and religious trauma in general is that we can be so hyper-focused on alleviating our symptoms and we might hate our inner critic and want nothing to do with this part of ourselves or the trauma, but that's a fight response towards it. And so the problem with this strategy is the more the inner critic feels despised and ignored, the louder and more active it becomes. Other may want to flight or avoid the pain and discomfort and move away from it in some way. But what would it be like to just put our hands down and it's still on our lap? We still have it. We still have our questions and our doubts and our concerns and our trauma, but we're doing that which is meaningful and purposeful. Can we do both, right? And so the problem I see with some people I work with is we could be so focused on healing, so focused on being angry at the church or wanting to get rid of our suffering that we miss out on the next moment of, hey, you could be depressed and anxious and still do what is meaningful. So that gets into who are you, what are your values, and that's a consequence of religious trauma because we have no idea who the hell we are because we were tethered to the religious matrix as they were telling us who we were. But once we work through that, it's amazing how liberating it can be. 
and working that out yeah. is part of the act experience. Is you know you're totally. discovering what those values are, and I love doing values discovery totally. stuff with my clients. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and so yeah, I think once people feel that it's so liberating, like what are their top five values? And it's so cool for them to actually own it. Yeah, and so then it becomes yeah, I could be having a shitty day, but am I living? a valued life right now. And that speaks directly to your third item of the Trinity of like, if I'm so depraved and so full of shit, then like, well, what do you mean my values, right? Like it's just Mm. God's values. All I need to do is like bring myself into alignment with scripture or whatever. And what you end up finding is like a lot of your values do line up with some scriptural principles. They will Mm. tend to be, some of them will be quite consonant with broadly speaking, a Christian worldview or something, but Mm -hmm. they're your own. And it's, you know, you can even use like body of Christ lingo of like, which part are you? Like, what's the stuff that you care about? What's the stuff that you're good at? And you can reclaim some of that stuff if the timing is right, where, you know, it's, it's, oh, that stuff's so good, man. I, we, I could go on about it forever, but we're out of time. You got to get back to clients Dr. Mark Karras, thank you so much for joining me. Sure. There will be a link to the book and our previous episodes in the show notes. Anything else you want people to perhaps check out? Nope. Just want to, you know, thank you, Dan, for giving me this time. I'd love for them to check out the book, you know, send me an email. I love interacting with readers and it's just, uh, yeah, I feel so grateful to be able to do this work and feel a real passion to uh, talk about it and help people work through it. I've been there you know, and I still were, go through it myself. I remember having a fear of hell as I was writing a particular chapter of this book, but I put into practice one of the uh, interventions I talk about in the book that was very helpful. So nice. I'm, st- I'm still working through this myself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, too much to ask that you would po- – I know you've been in the Facebook group at times. Pop in the, the Patreon Facebook group and do some listener questions after this episode airs. Brilliant. Let's do it. Okay. Mark will be Mark will be on a thread uh, in the Facebook group as well once this episode comes out. So thanks for that, man. Awesome. You got it, Dan. Good seeing you. 